As you're listening to this episode, let us know if you have any questions for our guest. If so, please send us a message to team at onehaas.org or join our discussion board using our Clever podcast app. You can download the app at clever.fm. Welcome to the One Haas Alumni Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Lee, and today we're joined by Kaz Farsad. Kaz is the VP of Corporate Development at Forterra. Forterra's mission is to contribute to the global goal of reducing carbon dioxide emissions by one teraton. Welcome to the podcast, Kaz. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Kaz, you were class of 2018, right? Executive MBA program. Yes. But before you came to Haas, can you just start with your origin story, where you're from, where you grew up? I was born on the East Coast in Virginia, moved to California at an early age. My parents, you know, Persian descent. They were part of the college students that got stranded in the U.S. during the revolution. Hmm. And that's where we started on the East Coast, decided to stay, migrated to California. My mom had relatives in the Bay Area, and that was supposed to be, according to them, where we were temporarily staying until things kind of <laughs> mellowed out. Yeah. <laughs> and been here since. <laughs> that's amazing. Okay. So you grew up in the Bay Area. Yeah. Spent the majority of my life in the Bay Area at this point. Wow. What did you study for your uh, undergrad? So for undergrad, I actually went to Michigan, University of Michigan. I studied material science, but it was one of those things where when you're from California, you kind of realize it's going to be hard to leave. So I decided to go out of state for school just to see what it's like to live somewhere else. Yeah. And really fell in love with Michigan and the area. And Ann Arbor. (laughs) Yeah, Ann Arbor especially. And yeah, just schools out there, I feel like have a different type of camaraderie and school pride and really good experience. How did you come to pick Michigan of all places? I mean, I chose it for the academic reasons. Material science program was just one of the top, top programs. But I was also swayed by the fact that it's a big football school, had a good athletic program. I love the idea of being tied to a school that there's a reason to come back. You know, Every football season, I like to make an attempt to come back and then watch a game and then just have that history. Yeah, that's awesome. My brother, I think I shared in our, our email that I went to Michigan State, but my brother is a Wolverine. So. Uh, <laughs> so I'm a Spartan, not a diehard Spartan, but a, a Spartan nonetheless. Yeah. Outside of Michigan, we're all from the... <laughs> we're all from Michigan. Outside of Michigan, exactly. We're all against Ohio State. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> all right. So after college, what did you end up doing? Yeah, right out of college, I came back to the Bay Area. My goal was as a material scientist, there's not a lot of jobs. I was on that cusp, one of those college students where computer science was kind of getting popular in the early 2000s. I was still of the mentality that chemical engineering, material science, this is good conservative engineering, always have a job. Had I known computer science and software engineering would have taken off the way it did, it would have, I probably would have had a different major, but got into material science, loved it. At my core, if I could, if there was money in it, I'd be probably a philosophy major. And material science was the closest thing that I found that kind of had a philosophical background. It was, it was very qualitative. You know, you're analyzing things that they're most minute, finest element. And mm-hmm. there was something about that that was just interesting. And when I came back to the Bay Area with this material science degree, I really did not know what I was going to do with it that would be significant and impactful. So I went on a couple interviews 
found uh, laboratory technician jobs, essentially running analytical equipment, which is something that material scientists tend to do. Yeah. Stumbled upon a cement company that was trying to change the world, basically develop a new way to make cement that was eco-friendly. Hmm. And the founder, he kind of got a hold of me and he, he loved Michigan and he said, hey, this is what we're doing. Not a lot of people have a lot of cement background. Material scientists are obviously well-equipped. Yeah. So ended up joining. The company was called Calera. Back then I was employee number five. And that first job actually dictated a lot of my beliefs, a lot of the industries that I eventually started tackling, and a lot of the problems that I started appreciating needed solutions, needed innovation. Hmm. Got it. What'd you end up doing after that? So that was the beginning of what I would call my just trying to disrupt the big industrial processes. So I spent several years at Calera in the lab working as a R&D tech, eventually got to R&D manager. From there, I jumped to desalination. I saw that as the next big hurdle that needed to be addressed. Mm -hmm. From desalination that organically transformed into fracking. The fracking industry has a lot of dirty water the metric that sold me was for every barrel of oil that they pull out of the ground, there's nine barrels of dirty water. Wow. And that water is very hard to clean. So the technology I was working on in, in the water purification space translated beautifully. I spent several years creating technology to clean up frack water. I'm the early stage prototype development guy. Yeah. I tend to become obsolete once we have a product. <laughs> I become yeah. a distraction. So. I have this ability to go to new technology, new space, have an outside perspective, develop a new solution, prototype it out, vet it, make sure it works, and then I essentially move on to something else. Desalination or the water purification, is that part of material sciences as well? Did that relate to your material sciences background? Yeah, that's a good question. So I, my material science background gave me good fundamentals for understanding how minerals, ions, and atoms behave. And a material scientist coming in and trying to be a chemical engineer gave me a very unique advantage because chemical engineers and mechanical engineers, they solve problems from the macro scale. They try to build equipment that can do certain things. Yeah. As a material scientist, I go into the same problem, but I can think about the fundamentals and try to design equipment that can manipulate those fundamentals. So taking a technology that might already exist and adapting it to what I need to do Understanding that, that chemistry, understanding the propensity of, a, of an ion really helps create innovative solutions that someone might not have thought of before or someone was sitting on the equipment that can do that. You just have to use it backwards. So the common thread for these industries for me was an ion is an ion. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of ions and desalination, this is something that actually I've been quite interested in for quite a while. I haven't had much time to read into it lately, but what is the latest on desalination? especially for a state like California? It's one of those things that you always have a competitor in, in an industry. Unfortunately, in this case, the competitor is rain. Yeah. And rain falls from the sky. So in California, we have a drought problem. But if you really think about it, if you take the entire state of California, you could isolate where we have a water problem. But we're only a couple hours away from a place that has too much water. I think that's, that's kind of what's preventing new technology for being developed or deployed because the technology is out there. We can desalinate seawater. It's expensive. Just to give you, I guess, rough numbers, we typically pay about 25 cents to 50 cents for a thousand gallons of water. Mm -hmm. 
to process and make clean water is about $5. So as badly as we need it, no one's going to pay 10x, especially when it's so cyclical. The demand is so cyclical that someone to make that type of investment for us to mentally change, to be willing to spend that kind of money, it's not there yet. We're not desperate enough there. The only region in the world who has bit the bullet is the Middle East. They have cheap energy. They can make clean water for essentially less money and they need it badly. So yeah. California is in a drought, but we're not hurting enough yet. Interesting. <laughs> okay. Did not know that. The technology really is there. I mean, we have several really slick ways to do it, but the economics just aren't. What is the biggest cost? I know for a while, the biggest cost was the energy factor. So if you're doing seawater, the technology itself is kind of exotic. You're using these really exotic membranes and they don't last very long. So it's a very maintenance intense. There's a lot of energy. Every gallon has to be pressurized to several thousand PSI to get it through a membrane. And that is the best technology because you're physically separating out the impurities. The technology that's getting the most traction is distillation, where it's, it's a thermal process. You're boiling the water. The vapor itself is pure water. The challenge there is capital expense because you put in the energy up front and conservation of energy exists. So if you put thermal energy into the process, you make this steam, you condense the steam, you get all of your heat back. It doesn't go away. Capturing that heat and reusing it becomes the name of the game. So you have to essentially build 10 of the same reactors so you can reuse that same heat 10 times. And then all of a sudden you're economical, but you just built a water purification system that's 10 times the size of what it should be because you're trying to reuse that energy. And it's a trade-off now. You can use the membrane and, and it's cheaper, but the OPEX is high. Yeah. Or you use distillation where it's OPEX is cheap, but the CAPEX is really high. That's really interesting. So tell us a little bit about Forterra. Just reading this, right? Reducing carbon dioxide emissions by one teraton. Like how much is a teraton? Yeah, we roughly put off about 50 billion tons of CO2 per year as a society. I got into the cement space about 12 years ago at that first company called Calera. And Forterra really is a renewal of Calera's technology. Back then, it was the same goal, reduce carbon emissions. The cement industry is about four or five billion tons of cement per year, which is about three or four billion tons of CO2 per year. So the cement industry in itself is about 8% of all CO2 emissions that get emitted. Wow. Okay. Yeah. 8% of the globe's emissions come from cement. Cement is this sleeper industry that it's the largest industry behind drinking water. And it just does not get talked about. It kind of just is there. We take it for granted. The industry has been doing a fantastic job being as efficient as possible. It's the largest production plant you'll ever see. So their economies of scale, they've maxed out. They've done everything in their power to basically make this powder. One ton of cement powder is about $120. And that's the back of a giant truck is about a ton of powder. And this is a very valuable functional powder. And it's just $120. It's the cheapest material you can possibly buy. The raw materials in another industry cost more than the finished product in this industry because they've gotten so good at manufacturing it. The problem is the actual process to make cement, you take limestone, which is a, a carbonated mineral, and you burn it and you release the CO2. For every ton of limestone, your starting material, about 0.44 tons of CO2 gets released. So about half of your feedstock gets lost to a CO2 and 
limestone makes up about 80% of the formula. And it's unavoidable. It's unavoidable. You have to burn it to make it cementitious. And 12 years ago, at Claire, we developed a new chemistry that essentially mimics the way nature. So when we make cement, we release CO2. When nature makes hard materials, it actually takes CO2 out of the atmosphere. It takes calcium wherever it can find it. The ocean, for instance, reacts it and creates hard substances, hard materials. Coral reefs, any hard shell in the ocean, they all rely on this process where they take CO2, they take calcium, they react it, and they make this mineral. And the challenge was from the moment CO2 and calcium react to where you get a hardened material, it's a very quick in the milliseconds process, Hmm. but it goes through multiple phases before that happens. The same way, you know, a child is born and then 20 years later, you're an adult. Yeah. Supposedly you're an adult. (laughs) (laughs) We go through these growth phases, but it's a very fast transition. And for a mineral that, that happens in the milliseconds. Yeah. So we figured out how to isolate the CO2 and calcium mineral in an intermediate phase where it's still reactive. It has not grown to its full crystalline, stable mineral phase, isolate it, stabilize it, and do it so it's we stabilize it long enough to where we can actually manufacture it, separate it, and dry it. Wow. Next time you add fresh water to it, it finishes its crystallization journey to a hard material. And at that time, my core focus was inventing that cement and that stabilization process. And we were wildly successful. We did it. We actually mimicked the way nature would make this mineral. We scaled up the process and the economics just weren't there. It would cost us a couple hundred dollars per ton to make. It costs about $50 to $70 to manufacture cement. It's only worth about $120. So same thing as the drinking water we talked about earlier. It's too expensive. No one's going to be the first adopter. Right. That's where, you know, I parked that technology. Personally, I moved on to desalination. But Forterra came along and then our CEO and CTO, they basically dusted off those patents and they said, this was a really cool technology. The cement worked. It just wasn't economical. Could we make it economical? And then they basically called all the thought leaders from the original R&D team, got us back together and said, hey, we have this theory. If we were to make this cement at a cement plant, all the capital costs would drop significantly. And then now it might actually become economical. Ran the numbers, did the experiments necessary to confine yourself to a cement plant, take the feedstocks they have available, which is every cement plant in the world is built on a limestone quarry. If we take limestone and we take the CO2 from the kiln, can we make our cement? The answer was yes. And we make it very successful at making it. And then that translated to really competitive economics. The big challenge with the cement industry is it's been around for 100, 120 years. They've got about a trillion dollars in infrastructure. Their economies of scale are just, you can't compete with it. So they have the largest mining operation, largest grinding operation, and the biggest kilns in the world. Anyone who tries to compete with them you're not going to be successful unless you use their equipment. Right. And that was a game changer. We can make our product at any cement plant in the world. And a cement producer just needs to be interested in our chemistry. It's changing dials on a grinder and changing temperatures on a kiln. It's a lower temperature to produce. On the backside, we take the CO2, we dissolve it. So we do downstream, we we do post-processing where we take their CO2 and we turn it into more product that's kind of where we get our economic advantage. They take limestone, they grind it, they burn it, and the output is their cement, but they lost 44% of the weight of the limestone to CO2. We take limestone, grind it, burn it, 
but the CO2 comes back and is part of the finished product. So instead of having to mine two tons of limestone and grind and calcine, for us, it's just one ton. Wow. So half as much processing at a lower temperature, but more importantly, using their equipment. Because you tell somebody that just built a $400 million plant that they built 50 years ago, it's already been paid off twice, that their equipment's no longer useful for our process, they're not interested. Absolutely. And that's the biggest challenge I've seen in all these industries because they're all big industries with a lot of investments. When you develop a new technology, it's your operating cost and your CapEx versus just their operating cost. Mm -hmm. That's the real calculation that happens in the background. They already spent the 400 million on the cement plant. If you're coming at them with a new technology, it's CapEx plus OpEx. that has to be more competitive than just their OpEx because they already, it's some cost, it's over. Yeah. This is equipment that lasts 50 to 70 years. So you're not going to wait them out, but that's why it was really important to utilize all the infrastructure they had in place, starting from the mine, even through distribution. Our cement, you blend it in with existing cement, it meets regulation, and it goes out the same distribution channel. And that was important too. And and you wouldn't notice that our product's even in there, except it's a little bit lighter because our product's white and Portland cement's gray. Yeah. Wow. That's a lot to think about. (laughs) There should be a class on strategy just taught on that, (laughs) right? It's how to disrupt industries. Can you get creative where you leverage their existing CapEx? Engineers and scientists think in OpEx and we make processes more efficient, but a really smart scientist will make a process more efficient using something really expensive, like a membrane or a catalyst. And you're always competing with an industry that's probably just burning things to get to the end product. Whereas in our sustainable goals in the green industry, your goal is to burn the least amount possible. The easiest way to summarize it is there's breaking bonds and there's creating bonds. Sustainability is about creating bonds, molecular bonds. Whereas consumption is just breaking bonds. When you burn coal, you're breaking those bonds. There's nothing left. There's no more potential energy left because the bonds have been broken. And when you create energy, you're actually creating a bond that can be broken later. And then trying to find a circular way to do that, where you can create a bond, which stores energy, and then break a bond, which allows you to capture that energy and do it in a cyclical fashion. That's hard, but that's, that is the sustainability. That's, we always talk about the circular loop. As a material scientist, I just think in bonds. Circular loop, can you create a bond and make a bond? Create a bond with X amount of energy and get that much energy out of it without losing more than you put in. The energy is there. It's can we capture it and utilize it efficiently? Yeah. It's the reason why gasoline has gotten so far. It's so convenient. The energy density of gasoline is really high and it's easy to put in a tank. The tank doesn't have to be pressurized and you can drive around with it pretty safely and you just burn it as you need it. And it's energy conversion efficiency is there. It's just hard to compete with. Whereas, you know, batteries like lithium ion got there, but before lithium ion, the energy density just wasn't worth it. I'm curious how you think about this idea that you just brought up. There are clearly industries where the capital expenditure is so high and CapEx is designed to last a long time, making it hard to disrupt these industries. I'm curious to hear how you think about incremental disruption in some ways versus massive disruption. The example I have in mind is obviously speaking of gasoline as electric cars. To be honest, like I'm a pretty lay person about this. I, I don't know much about the 
actual economics of electric cars. Is it truly better? Is it more green than gasoline cars? I don't know. But when we look at things like cement and what you're telling me, is what you guys are trying to do a stopgap to ultimately creating a new type of cement? I'll say for cement, we'll run with the numbers and this will very easily answer the question. We consume about 5 billion tons per year of cement and that cement has to come from a mineral and that mineral has to be something that we have access to. Limestone, it's not a coincidence that every cement plant in the world is built on a limestone quarry. Limestone is one of the most abundant minerals on the planet and by abundant, it's abundant and accessible. So it's a surface mineral we can actually get to. This industry can only thrive and survive. The cement industry or just the the building material industry, your raw materials have to be as available to meet the demand of that industry. We'll eventually be at 10 billion tons per year consumption, which means we have to have access to 10 billion tons of this mineral. There's no other minerals. There's limestone and there's silicates that are available in this quantity. Most minerals, I'd say just a random mineral, iron chloride or something like that, they're available, but they're in the hundreds of millions. Limestone's in the billions. And we have the supply to last us hundreds of years, but more importantly, the mining operations already exist. So my advice for anyone that's trying to be a fast follower or develop in the space is if it's not made out of limestone, you're in trouble already. Because you can't recreate a 5 to 10 billion ton per year mining operation. The mineral has to exist. And then the actual mining equipment and the rail, it's almost too late. 100 years ago, 120 years ago, they laid down all this infrastructure. So when I think about our solution, I think we did a really good job of not only creating a process where the infrastructure is in place, but choosing feedstocks that actually scale with the problem with the industry, right? If, if we had some unique cement chemistry, there's a lot. There's a lot of really smart cement chemistries out there, but the minerals are based on, you'll exhaust them and you'll have only done 1% of the market. Whereas we can actually scale with the size of this industry. And because we don't release CO2, every limestone quarry, their life value just got doubled. Yeah. Originally we were burning half and now we've just doubled the life of all the accessible limestone in every quarry. If CO2 was not an issue and that was not the main driver, our story would be we double our raw material utilization. We are a more effective way to make cement out of limestone because you get twice as much out of it. And that would be enough to tell a story. But CO2 is obviously what's hot right now and rightfully so. Literally. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's really wonderful. I just realized the flaw in my question and what I was thinking is we have to think about that industry in its totality. The conversation isn't about cement or some other type of cement. It's actually like an improvement within this industry, just like an improvement in the automotive industry as a whole. What it made me think of was there's industries that need to exist and they serve a bigger purpose. Transportation is obviously essential. The way we do it might not be the most efficient way. For myself, I got pulled back into the cement industry, right? I did this 12 years ago. I was in love with the technology and the cement chemistry to be developed, but I'd left and I had no intention of coming back because I was tackling what I felt like were more, you know, drinking water and health were more tangible goals that I felt like I could achieve. Yeah. But cement, you forget that cement literally creates civilizations and it creates society. 
We build our dams out of cement. We build our roads. The difference between a developing nation and one that's been developed is literally how much cement they've put down. Yeah. And the cheaper cement gets, the better people can build their cities and the built environment around them. So cement should theoretically cost about three or $400 a ton, given the next comparable product, but it costs 120. If it gets down to 50 or 60 or even less, the entire world benefits because we now have this material that you can build housing and infrastructure with. There's a direct correlation between how advanced we are and how cheap cement has gotten. Yeah. I would say that the more we can do to bring the price down and make it sustainable, it will grow. It will bring everybody into the future. That's awesome. (laughs) There's a surprising amount of depth there and you really don't think about it and you have to get into the weeds to start appreciating the magnitude of this industry. Yeah. Nobody goes into this thinking, you know, cement is exciting, but once you hear all the facts and the numbers and the impact and the significance, you're like, oh, wow. It makes me wonder. So brand new house, right? Why is my house not cement? Is there a cost reason to it? Is wood cheaper? (laughs) Literally in California, it's because the earthquakes. (laughs) Ah. Cement cracks. We build our houses out of wood and and steel. And and that's to allow for these earthquakes. And you kind of want that sway. Yeah. Everywhere else, they do build their homes out of brick or concrete where possible. That makes sense. Yeah. But you go anywhere else in the world, they're using concrete. It's such an easy material to work with. Yeah. I remember living in downtown LA when they retrofitted a bunch of buildings, especially the building that we lived in. It was an office building. They actually hollowed out the middle and had reinforced concrete poured straight down the center, like a huge block of it. So it's still useful. (laughs) And the reinforced part, it was the key. They put a lot of rebar in the middle. Yeah. That's what's keeping it intact. I see. So there's games to be played there. Does a rebar add to the cost, I imagine? If I were to build my house out of rebar and cement, it probably would cost a lot more than lumber, I imagine. I would say the biggest cost you incur right now is, is just labor. Hmm. Lumber just got really expensive lately. But <laughs> yeah, in general, California, we build them out of just wood and sheetrock. But our houses, yeah, they're not the best made. Yeah, that's how I feel. Yeah. <laughs> For the prices <laughs> that we pay. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty jealous of the all brick houses. Yeah, same here. Anyway, this has been really fun, Kaz. I feel like I learned a lot. Any parting words of wisdom? Was there anything that you wanted to share about Forterra? I know you guys had raised money and was there anything that you wanted to speak about on the podcast or share? The biggest thing we're trying to do right now is just build awareness around the cement problem, but also the cement opportunity. There's not that many industries in the world that if you do somehow reduce CO2 emissions, it's a big number. Yeah, A lot of people, they do a lot of small things, recycling and It's all important to do. And if we all do it, it'll add up. But this industry has the ability, you know, a successful adoption of a new chemistry that doesn't release as much CO2. We're talking 5% of the globe's CO2 emissions reduced. And this industry is so good at adopting. When they do adopt a new technology or a new chemistry, they can do it fast. We have all these goals to get to net zero emissions by 2030 or 2050. This is an industry that can do that. Yeah. This is one that in 20 years, they can retrofit every single cement plant in the world. They're just so large. There's about five or 6,000 cement plants, which is not a big number, right? Yeah. 
cars. We're trying to put a battery in hundreds of millions of cars. That's a different type of challenge. Yeah. It's 5,000 point sources, 6,000 point sources. Let's change the chemistry and it'll be about 5% reduction in CO2 globally. One fact that I always like to talk about, a CO2 molecule that leaves an exhaust pipe in, let's say, China, within a day or two, it's in California. Hmm. So this is not a... It's not a local problem. It's not a local problem. It's a global problem. And the rest of the world operates on economics. You have the progressive areas and in countries and in regions, and they're bearing the brunt of trying to reduce CO2 emissions. But it's because they know this is not a local problem. It's a global problem. But if we create solutions that are economical and they don't require subsidies from governments to be sustainable, there's no reason why everybody will not adopt it. That was the most important thing for Forterra is can you make this cost competitive with the product you're trying to substitute in for? And the answer is yes. So I can't imagine why we're not going to take off like wildfire. That's awesome. Thanks again for coming on the podcast today, Kaz. It's been a pleasure having you. All right. Thank you, Sean. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the One Haas Podcast. If you enjoyed our show today, please remember to hit that subscribe or follow button on your favorite podcast player. We'd also really appreciate you giving us a five-star rating and review. If you're looking for more content, please check out our website at haas.fm. That's spelled H-A-A-S dot F-M. There, you can subscribe to our monthly newsletter and check out some of our other Berkeley Haas podcasts. And until next time, go Bears. Go Bears.